Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, this is Allison, and welcome to the podcast. With me, I have Robert Lamb. Hey. Today, we're talking about gene banks. So, Robert, what's the uh, oldest example of gene banks? What do, what do listeners know about gene banks? Well, it's really kind of impossible to get into gene banks without bringing up the uh, classic uh, biblical story, legend, myth, etc. of uh, Noah and the Ark. I think everybody pretty much knows this one. Um, it's a tale older than the Bible. There's a big flood coming. Maybe it's because there's just a lot of water rising. Maybe it's because humans are horrible and God's punishing them. God's wrath. Yeah, he's pretty pretty rough. So this guy, Noah, decides he's going to build this great big boat, and he's going to put uh, two of every animal on it so they can ride out the storm, and then when the waters come back down, the animals can get back off and continue uh, what they're doing. So basically, he is safeguarding the future by um, stockpiling the animals. And uh, that's basically the same uh, the same deal we have going on with gene banks today. And also, it, it, they, our efforts tend to uh, go along the same lines that either some sort of natural disaster will uh, will will make us make it necessary to uh, replant everything, or uh, that we'll uh, end up you know destroying ourselves and need to rebuild after that. Oh, he's such an optimistic guy. So Noah is Noah is kind of our oldest example, but we've been doing gene banks ever since we. Uh, turn from hunter-gatherers into an agrarian society. We've been farmers for quite a while. Archaeologists have found evidence of seed banks as far back as 6750 B.C., which isn't that much um, later than when we first turned into agrarian societies around 8000 B.C. So we've been farmers for a while. Farming has evolved, definitely. You know, you can get into the whole genetic food, uh, genetically modified food and stuff like that. But it's still basically the same gig. We're uh, growing these massive amount of food crops. I mean, picture the classic example of, you know, a field of corn billowing under the Iowa sky. That's what we're talking about. But the problem with modern farming is that concentrating on a single crop leads to big problems because then you get things like the Great Potato Famine. Do you remember the Great Potato Famine? Uh, not personally, not personally, of course. But, uh, but yeah, you, you grow too dependent on a single crop and that creates a just a massive weakness, you know. It's like, it's like if you only eat, you know, sugar puffs, and then you go to the store one day and they're sold out. You know, what are you going to have for breakfast? Cheerios. Well. <laughs> anyway, the um, the organism that wiped out all those potatoes was called late blight, I believe, and uh, that nasty little pest is still around. And there are lots of other nasty little pests that can do the same thing. So the point of concentrating on a single food crop is is problematic. And that's why it's kind of like putting your eggs in one basket, if you will, except you know it's corn or it's soybeans or it's whatever it is. So more recent examples of some organisms that can do serious damage are called uh, like rust fungus, I guess, can just totally make life a living hell for soybeans. So farmers have decided, well, we're not going to take this risk. So they've started stockpiling. I mean, they've always stockpiled, but now they've taken some pretty serious measures with stockpiling. There's this one place called the North Central Regional Plant Introduction Station. Kind of a long name, but it's a simple concept. And the concept is stockpiling seeds. Um, at this one facility, they have about 10,000 varieties of corn. That's a lot of corn. I had no idea there were so many different varieties of corn. Right, and not not all of that is even going to be necessarily be corn that we can eat or um, or has any kind of a 
um, a crop potential. But uh, but part part of the uh, part of the plan is that while uh, while once the species of corn that, that we depend on, for instance, something happens to that, then a we could be able to come back and replant the same corn based on our genetic backup for that. But we'd also have various other gene profiles to to go from. For instance, if we needed to engineer a new corn that uh, met our dietary needs but also was uh, resilient uh, against uh, whatever kind of new biological or environmental uh, threat was posed to it. Right. So farmers are making sure that we're never going to run out of uh, that high fructose corn syrup for your sugar puffs. Exactly. So seed banks kind of help uh, protect our food supply, but there are other um, there are other purposes for seed banks and gene banks in general. Uh, right. Um, like like I mentioned with the corn example, basically what we're doing in that is we're protecting biodiversity. If you think uh, to go back to the supermarket analogy, there's a whole lot of stuff in the supermarket, and just because you only are buying sugar puffs and and Pepsi doesn't mean that there's a lot of valuable stuff in there. Maybe you just don't need it yet. So if you uh, if you were only you know, stockpiling. Pepsi and sugar puffs, what are you going to need do when you need penicillin? What are you going to do when you need this, that, or the other? Basically, uh, you know, we, we get so many different uh, medications from, the, you know, the natural world around us. Uh, there are so many, you know, potential cures out there that we haven't even discovered. So we want to protect that biodiversity now, um, stockpiling things that we don't even necessarily have a need for uh, as far as, you know, our own human greed goes. But, uh, you know, we'll be able to possibly exploit them in the future. So it's a preemptive measure, if you will. Right. So, uh, you know, towards that end, we, um, we're, we're stockpiling not just, uh, not, not just uh, plant genes, but also uh, animal genes and, uh, and even human genes. Well, of course we're animals. Right. Now, of course, we've been doing the, uh, we've been doing seed banks for a while. I don't know if you wanted to get into uh, seed banks at all. Sure. Well, I did tell you a little bit about seed banks and some of the history behind that and why farmers love them so much. But I actually wanted to talk about one of the coolest seed banks I think is around, and that is up in the Arctic, um, uh, in a place called Svalbard, Norway. Mm-hmm. Did you say that was a coffee table in Ikea? I, th- I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think we have one at home. Um, anyway, these Scandinavians teamed up with an organization called the Global Diversity Trust to store seeds of about every crop, a food crop in the world. Um, so that's going to be about 2 million or so samples, which is pretty amazing. And it's also a pretty huge task. So the nickname for this um, bank in particular is called the Doomsday Vault, which is right up your alley, it seems like, because you're a bit of a fatalistic guy. Well, they keep assigning me the uh, really fatalist articles. Um so they fortified this vault like crazy. So nuclear war, nuclear war wouldn't be a problem. Global warming, no problem. It's uh, essentially it's built into the side of an Arctic mountain cave, and it's not just built into the side of a cave. It's raised up about two hundred feet. So if the sea levels were to rise, and Antarctica melted, and global warming hell ensued, essentially, this thing would be protected. The only thing it basically can't survive is a direct nuclear hit. And, you know, what are they going to do about that? Yeah, it's not really a priority as far as targets go, I would hope. And, and of course, a, a, another uh, advantage to that, I'm, I'm assuming, is that uh, is that since most, uh, or a number of seeds anyway, will uh, will uh, sustain at a, at a freezing temperature. Right. If the power goes out, you know, say that happens in nuclear war, Seems pretty likely scenario. Um, these seeds are going to survive, so that's a good thing. So, if you're one of the lucky survivors post global cl- calamity, then you should probably make your way up to the Svalbard Vault up in Norway because that's where all the food is. That is where all the food is, but you might have to wait in line. 
please be polite, people. I guess uh, people are pretty serious about protecting their seeds. Oh, there's a really great story that I wanted to to share here, if I if I might, before we move on to animal okay. banks. So during World War II, a bunch of scientists, a bunch of Russian Russian scientists in Leningrad, stayed behind, and they were going to protect their gene bank for seeds from Hitler. Hitler's troops were getting close and closer. And these guys were so serious about protecting the um, genetic legacy, if you will, that they um, they stayed behind and um, were protecting the facility. And two of the scientists actually died of starvation while they were protecting, ensuring the future food supply. So um, it's pretty serious business. But, of course, we're not just talking about plants. We're also talking about animals as well. Right. And uh, a lot of our animal gene banks, It's uh, the technology involved isn't quite as... Uh useful at the moment, our ability to, uh, to replant. Obviously, we can replant seeds, and our ability to, uh, to clone plants is a lot more advanced than our ability to clone wolverines or, uh, or the like. But uh, we're still making sure that we uh, protect uh, especially uh, endangered animals, which is, uh, which is more of a task than you might think, considering uh, what I think we have... Somewhere in the neighborhood of... There are about 600 to 700 animals that make the cut on the U.S. Yes, uh, in the U.S. 900, in fact. Oh, wow, uh, even more. And uh, if current trends continue, scientists predict more than 1,000 species of mammals will face extinction in the next 30 years. So it's a lot of work stockpiling all of that. And it's not as simple as just, um, you know, even though there's a lot of genetic material, say, in a mammal's hair, um, most of these efforts are a little more involved. For instance... Uh, uh, some Chinese scientists have been busy basically stockpiling anything they can get off a of panda. Everything from panda hair to eggs, sperm, uh, etc. So I, I just imagine that when a panda dies in China, they just completely disassemble it. Their efforts, uh, in India to, uh, to eventually bring back, uh, clones of, uh, of an Indian cheetah that had gone extinct. You, you know, uh, uh, again, a lot of this is just, uh, protecting animals that we have either already wiped out or may potentially wipe out through uh, the unbalance that we, you know, bring to the world. You have to wonder, though, why they pick certain animals. Like, why do they pick the panda? Because it's cute. That's, <laughs> that's, that's really the only reason. They're, they're, they're not good to eat at all. So I've heard. Within the whole realm of animal banks, of course, there are human gene banks as well. And it sounds like kind of a sci-fi type of concept, but you guys are familiar with this because they're essentially called sperm banks, among other names. So you might think of a sperm bank as some place where a college kid goes to make a little extra money to go out on a Friday or Saturday night, but um, there's a bit more of a science to it these days. And they've been around since 1949 or so, although oh, wow. people have been donating sperm since, I think I read it was about the 18th century. They just weren't as organized about oh, it. Wow. Um, in the mid-20th century, they just figured out that freezing it would help ensure survivability. So, A, a lot of our uh, efforts with the human gene banks uh, really gets, uh, gets into the whole effort to, um, to map the human genome and, uh, and even map uh, um, the human epigenome. A, a lot of it is just canvassing uh, the genetics of, say, whole populations. Uh, for instance, there's a... Iceland's Decode Project, which stores uh, genetic uh, uh, material for research, actually, uh, because basically uh, genetics are again they're a they're a blueprint for who we are. And as we, you know, try and fix the various problems with who we are, we uh, we we need to know how we got there. China's currently uh, uh, currently has a number of efforts uh, in the works 
Um, they're busy mapping uh, the genetic data for residents of a city by the name of, and I may be saying this wrong, Teazu. Um, Sounds good to me. <laughs> that's as close as I'm going to get. Uh, again, a, a lot of this is not, it's not just a, a matter of, oh, are we going to, you know, bring people back later? Um, because, I mean, old, who's going to do it if we wipe ourselves out, right? But it, but it's about better understanding our own genetic legacy, understanding, um, the way genes, um, uh, uh lead to various health problems uh, or uh, or uh, immunities. Well, and then you also get into stuff like personalized genetic testing these days, where uh, we're going to write an article about this soon. You can essentially spit into a tube and it'll come back to you, analyzed for a set of specific genetic traits. Um, but what the laboratories who offer this testing aren't telling you is that they are storing your sample to build this massive um, genetic database, if you will. So it'll be interesting to see what some of the data they come up with and also some of the ethical implications of that. I mean, how do you feel about your DNA being out there? So we're we're quickly reaching a point where we could conceivably feel, fill a large wooden boat with genetic information for much of the uh, plant life, animal life, and uh, and human life on Earth. So, but the problem with that boat, a wooden boat, I wish you really do a wooden boat? Um probably be cheaper. Yeah. Mm. So if that boat didn't make it, and that's what people are really worried about, we have to make sure that we protect our legacy. So they've had some crazy ideas around this, haven't they? They have. Um, I think the the big one that comes to mind is uh, creating a doomsday arc uh, and putting it on the moon, because the idea, I guess, is that while we, we might just completely destroy everything here, probably won't spill over to the moon just yet. So, um, Lucky for the moon. Yeah. And uh, and then of course there there are a lot of problems with that. It's like you get, it would be kind of a pricey endeavor to get all that genetic information up there. And then once it's up there, um, you know how is a you know post-apocalyptic society going to even know about the uh, genes on the moon? Much less get back there. I mean, how many times have we been here? Been there? You know, not not that that much. Well, we're s- slated to get back there in two thousand twenty. So, yeah. so, so. We'll have to, to leave some genes behind. Maybe the astronauts can take along that wooden boat full of genetic material. Yeah, I think ultimately one of the things about it is that it, it kind of ends up being like, you know, sending golden plates out into the into the stars or uh, you know, or, or bearing a time capsule. You know, it's it's more about our legacy and putting something out there that says, "Hey, we were here and we did this." than actually, uh, you know, safeguarding, you know, future generations against uh, you know, our own self-destructive tendencies. Right. Everybody loves to leave a legacy. So I think we about covered it. But if you are interested in gene banks or doomsday vaults or, hey, even nuclear winter, why don't you go on over to HowStuffWorks.com to read some more articles. Thanks for listening. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more HowStuffWorks? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage.